this week, I was running the neighborhood. I started running outside again because like winter's over and mm. I just needed to feel better. I went and got new tennis shoes. <gasps> nice. So I'm running and running. Uh, flat ground in front of me, falling no. completely oh, down. Oh, that's the worst. And there's people outside <laughs> in front of their houses. Oh. I definitely made a crazy noise when oh I was my falling. Gosh. Were you okay? Yeah, it was fine. I like scraped up my oh, ankle. Oh, no. It was like dripping blood on my leg, but it wasn't bad. Like it yeah. didn't hurt like really bad, but my pride oh. was... That's the worst part. Stained. Stained, that's like, stained. That's like when I did that on my bike. Where like I used to like be the girl to like I would park off campus because I didn't want to pay for parking. Yeah. And I would ride my bike to the campus. And like, you know, I had a cool bike and I was like, I'm so cool with my yellow backpack and my like, you know, it wasn't a fixed gear bike, but it was a um, single speed bike. Right. And uh, yeah, there was one time where I was coming up and it was a huge patch of gravel and my entire bike slid out. I mean, I broke my big toe. It was the worst. And everybody's just like, oh my God, are you okay? And you're like, I'm fine. Don't look at me. It was like these two high school boys pretend that were like, are I'm you not- all right? <laughs> pretend I'm not here. Yeah. Please pretend I'm not here. <laughs> but um, also call my boyfriend because I can't walk. <laughs> it was really embarrassing. And yeah, Casey had to pick me up and he took me to a bar, of course. And I'm sitting in the booth of like a that Irish bar in Towson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep, uh, that was the worst. Great. But great we're time. not here to talk about personal injuries. No, or personal embarrassment. Yeah. We're here to talk about history. On the rocks. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history with Katie. And Allie. <laughs> and we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women... Have nuance. But keep in mind, we're drinking the entire time. And we are not historians. Yep. Those are the two most important things to know before you start listening. And (laughs) apparently we have a liberal agenda. (laughs) Guys, we got our first one star review this week. Our first one ever. And I'm pretty proud of it. I'm pretty proud of it. Uh, Yes. Someone was mad at us for pushing our liberal agenda. (laughs) You know, it was like really mad because like, I don't even remember what we said about police, but like, we're probably just making like general criticisms because we need to fix the police situation in the united states the the murders (laughs) you know it's all not all police i know but like you know it's one of those things like if you're not willing to like recognize that there is a problem with the police system, I don't know what to do with you because like it's very clear. Well, you know what I'm just, saying? It's like, just because it's politicized. If I is. say something, something like blah blah blah, women with brown hair. I don't mean all women with <laughs> yeah. brown hair. I mean in general, women with brown hair. Like, yeah, it's just so funny because like I, I know we, it. I know I we it. do get like kind of political sometimes, but like I never really think of it. I'm like, yeah, well, like we covered Sarah Palin the same way we did Hillary Clinton. You know, mm-hmm. like we talk about them because like. They're both in the cultural zeitgeist and like, and I don't know. I, yeah. And they're important people. So yeah, it's just really funny. I was, I'm really sensitive to criticism and I was like, oh, well that I don't care about. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to be one of those people with a liberal agenda. Cause I had a conservative agenda for the first oh, like 18 years of my life. I sent it to everyone <laughs> I care about. I was like, guys, my liberal agenda is out there. Um, okay. But we also got three new patrons, what? which is incredible. Oh Ariel, Molly, Mallory, welcome. Your gifts will be coming in the mail. Oh, we love you. That's already so i don't even know you and i love you already yeah, glad to have you glad to have you and okay, i'm still tallying up zodiac signs that was one <laughs> patron question this week that they're all telling oh, really? me what their zodiac signs are i'm trying to get a good tally of who 
likes to give. Okay. So we'll find out. No sadness. good me so I, far. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, I love stuff like that. It's like fun for me to like dabble because <laughs> I love seeing that, like how they do like, you know, like, oh, like the percentage of presidents that are like Leo's or like this. I'm like, I just think it's fun. It is very cool. Yeah. But then you get into like sun sign, moon signs and like, Oh yeah. What time I, of the day were you born and yeah. shit like that? I can't handle that. What Straight day of the week? Straight up noon, noon <laughs> on a Saturday. Ow. <laughs> Ow. Not trying to brag, but I feel like that means something. That's crazy. <laughs> um, but people are busy. They're so busy. They're busy reading their horoscopes right now. Absolutely. Cause you got to stay happening. on top of it. You do um, changes. <laughs> changes so much. So you're busy doing that. So you can't take time away to look up these women and see what they look like. So in order to get a picture in your head while we're telling their stories, we're going to get a little physical, physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? So I'm kind of doing one person mm-hmm. that was recommended named Surma Sock. And she was an Inuit woman who's most likely fictional or folklore. Okay. But then I'm buffering that with Inuit women in general, okay. which are a distant subgroup of the Mongol Malay people and are separate in characteristics from other Native American groups. Okay. So it's much more Asian Pacific Islander than the, um, you know, Central and South Mm -hmm. America Native American. Um, In their hair and eyes, it's a similar shade to Native Americans, but traditionally their skin is much lighter and their face is typically round and flat. Traditional Inuit women wore caribou skins with a parka, trousers, mitts, a large tall boots, and typically a the back of their parka had a pouch for carrying their babies. For our specific Inuit folklore, Sermersak was the strongest Inuit woman ever to live. Wow. So okay. picture the power. I will. Power in a parka. <laughs> power in a parka. Parka power. <laughs> Why didn't I name my cocktail that? You can always change it. No, I missed, I missed it. I missed it. All right. Who are you doing and what does she look like? Okay. So I am doing Stephanie St. Clair. So she is a tall, statuesque, lean woman. She had dark skin, kind of skin, kind of wide set, almond shaped eyes and dark hair, usually kind of curled into a bob. Um, and she often had a really cool, like mobster hat, fedora, fedora on her head, yellow Dick Tracy's color. (laughs) But the most striking thing about Stephanie was always like, I was just implying what she was wearing. She typically had a very fancy dress, pearls, a striking hat, a fur coat and heels, which she wore everywhere she would never be seen in flats even if she spent the entire day walking from one side of harlem to the other i love a girl (laughs) i love a girl who's just not giving in dude and every photo she is just posing Mm. like i love it she's so cool that's like how (laughs) diablo cody is like i put on my red lipstick at home yeah yeah it makes me feel good oh yeah if stephanie st Clair weren't going anywhere she would still be dressed to the nines in her like classic brownstone in sugar hill harlem well i'm jelly belly about that oh so. yeah <laughs> okay so what do you know about sermersock and or um inuit women i don't know much i'm sure they are 
frequently cold because mm-hmm. I believe they live up in the north. That's true. So are we talking about like more like above Canada or Alaska? Like what? Um, I'm mostly focusing on Canada and Alaska, okay. but it also the Inuit culture also stretches to Greenland and Russia. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So, so it's pretty much the northern tribes, like the yeah. So like the cert, like I feel like I'm picturing like the North Pole, mm-hmm. and then that kind of like that circle that around circle, it. Yeah. Yes, that's what it's called, <laughs> Arctic <laughs> Circle. Um, yeah. So I really don't know anything. So okay. I'm excited to learn because I don't really know much about Inuit culture or their fables or stories or their women. So yeah, yeah I'm I'm stoked. Uh, do you want to know what you're drinking? I do. It looks delicious. Um, so this is a dessert cocktail that I'm mm. actually really, really proud of. Okay. Because there is nothing in it that doesn't have liquor. Okay. So it is a glass with ice and the glass is rimmed with powdered sugar. And then it's two ounces of Bailey's Irish cream, two ounces of rum chata, which I don't think we've used before. No, we haven't. Uh, I love it. <laughs> and one ounce of vodka. Ah, oh, amazing. So, cheers. It's so good. Isn't it good? Oh my gosh. It's wild because it doesn't taste mm. super liquory, but it yeah. doesn't taste super sweet. No, it doesn't. It's very smooth. Mm-hmm. Mm. I absolutely love it. I was really worried, which I think, honestly, you could probably do equal parts Bailey's Rum Chata Vodka. I did yeah. less vodka, but I think mm-hmm. it could be ramped up if you wanted it to be stronger. It tastes like eggnog. It does. Do you get that? It tastes. It does. It have, mm. has notes of that for sure. Oh, my gosh. That's delicious. So. We're keeping the theme going <laughs> this season. I'm going to mess it up. <laughs> that's that really okay because we can't put all of these in our cocktail book. Yeah, Guys, exactly. We're, we're in the process of narrowing down what can go in the book. Yep. So if you have a cocktail that we've made and that's you've made favorite. it home that's your favorite, please let us know because I We cannot put the Frida Kahlo's in there. Also, <laughs> do you know... So I went through and I like arranged them all into like the different spirits. I saw, I it's saw. unbelievable how late in the game we started using whiskey and bourbon. I know. It was know. it wasn't until like I think the first one was like Helen Keller or something like that. It's really deep. It's in. really late. Well, did it's we just do all three. vodka and gin? We did all vodka and gin. <laughs> we were babies back then. We were babies. babies. Okay. So first this story first came to our attention from Rejected Princesses, mm-hmm. which a lot of the um, women of color folklore stories come from that website. Oh, yeah. Mine's from there, too. Well, yeah. part of it. <laughs> and I mean, it's just like it's such a great resource for getting like off kilter women. But I was very, very shocked at how little information I could find about Inuit or Inuk women. Mm-hmm. I mean on YouTube, on Google, on, you know, pod, Apple Podcasts, like barely anything, mm. which is absurdly shocking to me. I would have thought like, usually if I'm like stuck in a corner, I'll just type in like Inuit and feminism or mm-hmm. like Inuit and women's rights. Nothing is wow. coming up. That's wild. I know. I couldn't believe it. So all my scholars out there get on it yeah. because <laughs> somebody's got to read this. However, 
There is this book called A Kayak Full of Ghosts by Lawrence Millman, and it's a collection of Inuit folktales that reveal years of stories and tradition. Some of these stories include the strange and gruesome events of the Arctic, because the Mm. Arctic is like... It's a brutal place to live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like die and let die. That's all that happens there. It's mystic, it's beautiful, it's violent, and a lot of their stories were handed down orally, so there's not a lot written down. So in this book, he collected Inuit folk tales, and it includes children eating their parents, hunters who kill their prey by breaking wind, men who marry rocks, women who marry their sons' wives, old people who wed insects, women with iron tails, children who grow antlers, um, a man who turns himself into an animal and animals who obtain their body parts from stealing dead human bones. <laughs> okay. These folktales are... Wow. They're very intense and very okay. cool. Like Grimm's fairy tale type folklore. Okay. Yeah. And taken together, the stories portray a really rich culture in a remote land. But as we know, most folktales come with a kernel of truth, a message, mm-hmm. or a reason. So, like, I know I've heard before um, a lot of, like, people, if they live in a dangerous area, they'll make up a folktale about the rivers. Um, and it's really because the rivers have alligators, but they just want to scare their children of the rivers. And then yeah. over time, it gets handed down. And then people are fearful of going near the alligator river. There we go. Makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Like, why not? Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of these stories is about a woman. Her name is Summersock, which is <laughs> spelled not how you would think. S-E-R-M-E-R-S-S-U-A-Q. I did my best looking up pronunciation guides and listening to people with similar names on YouTube. Hmm. Her tale consists of an Inuit woman who was strong, so strong that she could lift a kayak above her head on three fingertips. <gasps> okay, that's crazy because kayaks are pretty heavy. Yeah. That's I also mean, balance. Yeah, I can't really believe it. it's got to be right in the center. <laughs> she could also kill a seal merely by drumming it on the head with her fist. Mm. Like one fell swoop. Maybe she knew where the temple was. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And she could also apparently rip a fox or hair asunder with her asunder. bare hands. I assume that means a part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> asunder. Um, but... One of my favorite things about this woman is her big-ass trash talk. Okay. She loved to trash talk people (laughs) over how strong she was. So once she arm-wrestled this other powerful Inuit woman that she came across and beat her so easily that she said she's so weak she couldn't beat her own lice at arm-wrestling. Her own lice? (laughs) (laughs) What an insult. She's got digs for days. <laughs> um, yeah, but not as many digs as she has for the boys that Ooh. she beats. She loved arm wrestling <laughs> men and kicking their asses. Most men, obviously, she would beat as well. And then she would tell them, where were you when the testicles were given out? <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> 
I just <laughs> imagine it makes me think of the George Costanza scene where he's so mad because he's like, ah, the jerk, the jerk store called. And they said they're running out of you. Like the, t- the testicle store called and they said you never showed up. Like, <laughs> they're all layaway. Oh my God. That's yeah. so funny. But then there's this quote in this kayak ghost book that I referenced earlier that I, I just, (laughs) folk tales are breathtaking. Sometimes this Samarsak would show off her clitoris. It was so big that the skin of a fox would not easily cover it. And she was the mother of nine children too. I know that this is from me going to Christian school my whole life. <laughs> but you hate the, the, word the word clitoris is still so jarring to me. And oh I know God. it shouldn't be. I'm a fucked up feminist <laughs> because I want people to be talking about it all the time and it not be weird. But like, it is so, like, oh! <laughs> but she's, she said that <laughs> she showed off her clitoris and it was that big <laughs> girl. <laughs> Wow. I, <laughs> a skin of a fox can't easily cover it. Oh, my God. So here's what we know about her. <laughs> we know that <laughs> she hunts, that she boats, that she arm wrestles, and that she is shamelessly raunchy. And that's what we know about her. So what <laughs> I'm going to do is now talk about Inuit culture, Inuit women from the past, and present day Inuit women and I want us to tie like tendrils of that story in because very similar to the episode we did on Mulan where people were like Mulan most likely isn't real or maybe there's portions of her story that's real it's so important I think that like even if it's not a real story it's a real feeling that like women can be passionate and powerful and sexy and raunchy it's like when um Oh, when uh, Tina Fey talks about how Amy Poehler was like, I don't give a fuck what you think. Yeah. Like, and um, in bo- the book Bossy Pants, if you haven't read it, that's something that she says about her Her best friend was one of the men. I'm telling this story horribly. But <laughs> a man was didn't like her sexual jokes. And she just like whipped around. And was like, I don't give a fuck what you think. Yeah. It, this woman, like I felt that from her. Oh, that's so great. I also, I love that it's something that, I would never have been exposed to like this incredible like Inuit folk tale. You know what I'm saying? I think it's really cool because I think I'm hoping it gives like a picture into like what women wanted their young girls to be, you know, like I want you to be like proud and strong and like tell men to fuck off. Like I hope that like that's kind of why the story was made, you know? Like yeah. I think that's really cool. And I'm also like horrified of showing off my clitoris in <laughs> negative thirty-two degree temperatures. <laughs> um, it, that that really scares me. Frostbite scares me. Yeah. Okay, so. Inuit people are the most widespread and perhaps the most well-known group of indigenous people on earth. Their large populations cover many Arctic regions from Alaska, Canada, Greenland, and Russia. But the women specifically, I kind of want to set the scene for what their life looked like. Inuit women, for them, marriage is not a choice. 
But it's a necessity. And it actually is for the men, too, because Mm -hmm. you actually needed each other to survive. You couldn't hunt and gather. You couldn't build a shelter and raise children. So in order to survive in these harsh conditions, women are just kind of as valued in the sense of their working hands. Marriages were often arranged at birth, but it wasn't like a traditional arranged marriage. It was more like to ensure the survival. Like we don't have time for you to pick. Yeah. This is just the person that you're going to be with. Mm -hmm. Love and choice marriages did exist, uh, but they're all but arranged because there were very few people in each tribe. It's Mm -hmm. not a lot of people. Women were eligible for marriage as soon as they hit puberty, but men had to actually prove that they were effective in hunting to support a family. But the marriage wasn't official until they had their first child. Families could be monogamous or polygamous, but polygamy was rare because it was hard for one male to catch enough food for multiple Mm. wives and children. Mm Mm-hmm. So I just, I find all of this interesting because things like there are no dowries, but there's gift exchange between families. Both genders could claim divorce, even though it's frowned upon because what it does is leaves that other person in the dirt to freeze to death. Mm -hmm. So what they would do is spouses would sometimes be traded instead of a divorce if all the parties were uncomfortable Um, So that no family was left without an important member. Hmm. Um, And they would be traded permanently. It's not like wife swap for like a week. It was like in lieu of divorce, I like your husband and you like my husband. We're just going to switch. Okay. Like permanent. Interesting. And it was just a way to be like this pairing was arranged in childhood and didn't work. And this pairing was arranged and didn't work. So let's just switch it up which I had never heard of before yeah, um, and seemed pretty cool to me. Um, Childbirth and child care was obviously the most important task for Inuit women. And um, it's just recently that women being tethered to children has not been a necessity with the rise of contraceptives and the rise of um, choice, reproductive choice. And the rise of things like pumps, like when we think about breast pumps, like that's a really important, like you can choose to have nine children, but if you didn't have a breast pump, you can't go to work. Yeah. And things like formula, right? Yeah. Instead. So we're, we're in the first hundred years of like women actually not being tethered to their home. Right. Cause I always forget that there is literally a biological element to like, mm-hmm after you give birth, like your body is telling you to be near the baby by like certain things like, like breastfeeding and things like that or whatever. And like, I know it's not as straightforward as that for all women, but Mm -hmm. like there is some, like before we had tools to help with that, like you literally couldn't leave the baby. It was, you were a wet nurse. Yeah. They eat every two hours. You can't go anywhere. You can't do hours every two hours. Oh my God. For the first several months. What? You can't go anywhere or do anything. I didn't know that. It's terrible. It made me want Every to die. Every two hours? Yeah. So then, like, I would have to wear shirts that were easy to, like, take off at the shoulder so that, like, if we were at Sunday night dinner, I could, like, go inside and breastfeed or, like, you know, whatever. Every two fucking hours. Oh, my God. I didn't know it was that frequent. Yeah. And that's what makes it so hard 
to like be tethered. You are literally tethered to the baby. So there's such a biological element in why our culture has developed the way it has. Yeah. And now we have breast pumps. We have formula. Fathers can get up in the middle of the night and give them a bottle. Things that couldn't happen a hundred years ago. Yeah. So. Wow. Or with a wet nurse. Rich families, obviously, yeah. many societies had wet nurses. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also another woman being tethered to your baby every two hours. So mm-hmm. it's the same concept. Women were in charge of raising and teaching children as per the usual. But when the boys were old enough, they were shifted to the care of the men to teach them how to hunt and fish. But also, interestingly, there were no male or female names. Huh. But you were named when you were born, you were named after the most recently deceased relative. So Interesting. you could have your grandfather's name or a boy could have his grandmother's name. Like whoever is your most recently deceased relative. And it's called a soul name. I love that. Me too. I was like, that's beautiful. But I have a question. You might not be able to answer. It. I don't know. But so what if like you have. I guess maybe people died more frequently, like life expectancy was lower. So maybe Probably. by the time by the time you were having your next baby, but like mm-hmm. you would have another person <laughs> because I'm sure people died pretty often Probably. up there. Or or maybe a friend or like some, okay, I'm sure just someone something. close. Okay, mm-hmm. it said family in the article, but I'm sure family meant community in your community. Okay, kind of like the way Jesus keeps saying neighbor, but he means person you saw. Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> neighbor means literally anyone <laughs> just, just neighbor means stranger yeah. <laughs> in, in, in the Bible. okay adoption and unfortunately infanticide are pretty common oh no because families without enough money and without enough supplies who kept getting pregnant and having children would have to abandon an infant in hopes of another family finding it or you know, before it froze to death or before, like, an animal ate it alive. But before resorting to infanticide, people would offer their baby to the wealthy families in the community for adoption. It was just too much for some families to deal with bearing a lot of children and feeding them. Other female duties included gathering, preparing food, butchering and skinning and cooking the animals that were brought home from the hunt. They were in charge of food distribution. So all the food like went into the pot and the women had to distribute it. Sewing and making clothes was vital to protect yourself against the Arctic. And they would help with actually constructing shelters Hmm. while men were out hunting. Women did. And this goes along with our Sermersook. Um, women did hunt and boat for enjoyment if time allowed, but they received equal respect for their work. So they weren't yearning for it as a job. Okay. They would do it, but like everybody understood that like the thing at home is just as important as the thing out there. Yeah. Well, also I appreciate that there is a sense of like, you are tethered to the home. So like you if you can get away, like go do it. Right. You know, I like that there is that allotment because I feel like even nowadays, some women don't feel like they can take time for themselves. It is seen as so selfish, selfish. And mommy it's, guilt. yeah, there's, mommy guilt. oh my gosh. I mean, we've talked about it before. Yeah. There is so much mom guilt of like, I just need to get away for a second. Like, I mean, I feel like a lot of us probably had that moment where our moms walked out of the house and we're like, What's her problem? Like, I remember my mom did that one time. (laughs) She just walked out of the house because 
She had four kids and we were being terrible. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh my God. Like she's human. She's a human being who yeah. like is like loves being a mom, but like has emotions. Has emotions. <laughs> and feelings. Oh my God. Surprise. Surprise. <laughs> so everything sounds good so far. Things are going okay. But women did not have equal leadership or political power. Mm. So women were restored respected but men could choose to where to migrate where to go when to go men had the actual final say in marriage or divorce or adoption or infanticide all things that had a huge impact on female lives so for example a woman may have just given birth and doesn't have the strength to migrate hundreds of miles after that but these types of things didn't cross the minds of the men making those decisions Mm -hmm. so that was in the past how Inuit or Inuk woman lived. Modern day, the Inuit community is now living much differently than their ancestors. This is especially true of the women, not not as I mean the men are still living differently, but the women have kind of taken the flag and like moved forward. Mm-hmm. So after the modernization of wage labor, it became really common for Inuit people to move into towns. So they would have things like running water Mm. and heat. Um, And male Inuits took to assimilating, to learning the language, to learning the culture. But because of a lack of education, it really hindered the males from getting and keeping jobs. As a result, the women were finding domestic service jobs that don't require an education. So they were servants and store clerks and hospital aides and classroom assistants and interpreters, and they would weave and they would knit at shops. And they start making the bulk of their money because they were willing to take a low income for what was seen as female labor. And they were also skilled in it. Yeah. So Inuit women tend to go higher in education much more than the men. And in fact, a lot of Canadian territories have set up special programs for Inuit people to ensure that they can go to higher education. But the women seek it more. We see that as well in the United States. Mm -hmm. More than 65% of college degrees are from women. And because of that, They've gotten better jobs. And because of that, they're their family's primary wage earners. And that caused the men in the Inuit community present day to be doing the housework that's traditionally done by women. How do you think the men are reacting to this, Katie? Not well. Not well at all. You know, what's interesting is while you were talking about this, I had this flashback to college and someone did um, in one of my classes a whole presentation on how these communities have very high suicide rates, unfortunately. It's coming. Okay. And that I was like, I feel like we're getting to this and it's making me very sad. It is. So many men and women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Majority men, but women as well, have turned to drinking, drug abuse, and suicide. For the men, this has become a cycle of, I can't get a job, so I start 
this alcohol or drug abuse. So then I can't get a job. So then I go deeper into the alcohol and drug abuse Mm -hmm. and it's become a cycle. Um, And in you, women very often are feeling trapped between cultures. Yeah. Do I try and keep my traditions or do I modernize my family and where do I fit in this world? However, a lot of Inuit women in Canada, now I'm going to focus on, have increasingly started to run for political offices and become regular players in activism around Canada. So one woman named Leona Aglacuck is the first Inuk woman to serve in Canada's cabinet. Wow. And then Ava Arok was born in 1955 in Canada and was elected in 2008 to the Legislative Assembly in Nunavut, which is one of the territories in the northern half. And after that, she was elected to be the second premier of Nunavut. Um, And she was only the fifth woman to hold that post in Canada, which is kind of like a governor. Mm -hmm. You're like the head of the government for your territory. And um, just recently, like in 2017 or no, in 2008, she was the only woman elected to the legislative assembly. And she was really disappointed at this and suggested things like improving daycare so that women could have careers. Yeah. Because she's like, I'm the only woman here. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Or so that like both parts of the household can go out and like and do seek career because right. like it's because if the men are at home as well if she's at work yeah if if you have better daycare systems everybody can work if they choose to i literally don't understand why we can't prioritize daycare it is such an important thing public schools it's free really frustrating yeah, yeah exactly like, but I, like what about when it's little like i know so that's supposed to like wait until pre- before they're five years old we're not gonna we're not gonna pay for any Anything. Yeah. That's so crazy to yeah. me. So. You get a dark break. <laughs> <laughs> um, Elisa P. Shutipuk, uh was the mayor of Nunavut from 2003 to 2010 and then was elected to a higher position in government in 2017. And she is a huge women's rights activist. Her sister, Marianne, was murdered in an abusive relationship <laughs> in 1997, which happens frequently among people whose husbands are feeling disposed. So she started a project as part of the government where across Canada, towns would include a street named Angel in memorial of the Canadian victims of domestic violence. Now these are the, I want to say the boomer aged women that their families decided to assimilate into Mm -hmm. Canadian culture because their parents had kind of their rights taken away yeah there's a lot of young millennial inuits though and i was watching a lot of youtube videos from this woman who was born in alaska she's young probably younger than me maybe about your age and her american name is marjorie but her alaskan or inuit name is canuck and she decided that she was gonna start doing traditional face tattoos and bringing back dancing. So she got her own face tattoo, which for the Inuit culture is three lines from your lower lip down, extending under your chin. And she got, had hers done in 2012. 
and it's from the stick poke method, Mm -hmm. the traditional method. When she told her mother she was going to do it, her mother said, yes, absolutely. I'm so proud of you. That's so cool. When she told her grandmother, her grandmother just said don't oh because her grandmother was the generation that had their culture taken away and her mother's generation is the gap and now the millennials are attempting to bring it back so today a lot of young inuit women are trying to revive the culture that will bring back strength after centuries of historic colonial trauma Um, In the early 1900s, the Christians who came to North America banned traditional tattoos and traditional dancing, and the ability to come together as a community was broken. And a lot of people started saying to themselves, who are we? What are we doing in this world? And the alcoholism and the suicide of indigenous communities across the world became so high because they didn't know who they were, what, how they fit in yeah. society. So her goal is to reclaim that import, importance. So the chin tattoo was done, and it's done only on women. It's a female tradition, and it means strength. And you got it once you reached womanhood. And getting the chin tattoo and now her giving the chin tattoos, she says that when these woman, women look in the mirror, she can see the light in their eyes and it just like sparks a whole new strength. Oh my so gosh. I want to end on Marjorie because I, like she was the one I could find the most videos about mm-hmm. on YouTube. And it was just really encouraging to see a young, powerful, strong woman explain why she got this tattoo on her face, why she gives other women tattoos on their faces and what it means to their society. And I just feel like we're growing from colonialism. I know the world seems so grim, um, but I just think we're growing. I think so too. I mean, when you were doing your women's history photo project with the girls, I was blown away by the one of, Caroline when it was the woman who's like a news anchor in in New Zealand Zealand with the traditional indigenous tattoos on her chin. First woman ever. First woman ever. Primetime television. Because I feel like we're even just getting comfortable on like even small tattoos. Regular tattoos. (laughs) Like, like, you know, like you're a professional and you have a tattoo. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, you know, it kind of feels like, again, like just a, a relic of colonialism. We're mm-hmm. like, okay, well, like young white women tattoos are getting okay, you know? <laughs> and it's like, but we obviously need to keep moving forward with it. And because they're obviously getting tattoos for such deeper and more important reasons. I and mean, it tells a story. It's, it your, does. Fam- it's your family's story. These yeah. tattoos, it wasn't like, I know, like, for me, tattoos are about art. It's yeah. about fun. It's about being mm-hmm. a little rebellious. But for so many indigenous cultures, it means so, so much more. Absolutely. And I just, um, have you ever gone down? So, like, I don't have TikTok, but I have, oh, my gosh, why did I say it like that? Um, but I <laughs> you said it like TikTok. TikTok on the But clock? they have the reels on the Instagram. <laughs> yeah, and um, there are so many beautiful, like, native dance Instagrams. Yeah. And I've gone down so many, like, holes. reels holes. Yeah. Where it's because it's so beautiful. Because they have, like, all the traditional costumes. Like, you know, like, headdresses. And, like, there's this one guy who, like, has these, like, 
eagle feathers and it's beautiful and then he made little eagle feathers for his son and it's like his little bait like four-year-old son like doing the dances and learning them and i just think it's so great and he'll like tell his story he was like you know a couple years ago like i didn't kind of like you were saying like i didn't know who i was i didn't know what i wanted to do and he goes so i just like I started dancing and it made me feel so much more connected. It made me feel grounded. I got back to who I felt like I should be. And like, it's just great. So yeah, indigenous TikTok indigenous is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really cool. And like, I'm glad that like, as much as people shit on millennials, I think that they are doing important work in other cultures to be like, fuck what's going on. I want, I want to get back to it because the scarring is just so real from years of, you're right, like colonial abuse, like, cause we're still living in it. Yeah. We're still living in the ramifications of, of all of that. Oh, and we will be for another hundred, oh, yeah. 200 years. The, yeah. the scar of that's not going to go away for a while, but like, I just think in these grim times, it's really important to point out that things are getting better. Yeah. They might not be like in big waves, but like, you know, one small step for indigenous yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> a step for mankind. Exactly. It might seem small, but it's so, so big. Yeah. So, oh. That's the story of... That was great. Oh, my gosh. I'm blown away. I'm blown away. women and a couple other random people. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into the mob scene. I'm so <laughs> ready for a Mrs. St. Clair. <laughs> me mean Madam St. Clair. Madam Welcome to Hashtag History. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And if you're a history nerd or even a history hater, this is the podcast for you. Even if history was your least favorite subject in school, we can guarantee you will like this podcast because we talk about all the things that your history textbooks did not. Things like how the Bonnie Prince Charles and his Jacobite uprising was a bit of a disaster. Yeah, or how the pharaoh Akhenaten was so disliked by Egyptians that they literally purged his name from nearly all of their records and pretended like he had never existed. And we do all of this while drinking and rating a custom-made cocktail specific to that week's topic. So grab a drink, take a seat, and hang out with us each week as we learn all about history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Welcome back. Welcome back. We have a new drink. We do. With but lots of cherries. <laughs> we do. Before we dive in, I want to talk about our great friend, Vero. Vero. Okay. Mm-hmm. What's Vero been up to? So she was listening to one of our episodes, like an old episode mm-hmm. where we were talking about indigenous people. And I was like, how are the indigenous, or we, we said in general, how are indigenous you know, why is the indigenous situation in, you know, Latin and South America so different from North America? And Mm -hmm. we kind of responded, oh, I guess it's skin color. But she gave this incredible answer about how it's like so much more than that. And like how a lot of times American culture like oversimplifies um, race because that's been our biggest problem. Mm -hmm. And she, she just gives such a great description that I'm going to post on our Patreon so that people can see it. But it does, it has a lot to do with people being scared of their children 
um, speaking the native language. So they try to get their kids to speak good Spanish so oh. they don't know. Um, and it's just so many layers upon layers upon layers of colonialism. And it's a really long and well thought out message. And I just wanted well, to point great. out that she sent it because – while we mocked the one star review that we don't give a <laughs> shit about. Right. This is stuff we actually care we about. actually want to learn. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Vero, thank you so much for that message. It was so well thought out and I learned so much from reading it because she's an anthropologist. No way. Yeah. So like she studies people. That was like my childhood dream job. <laughs> right? right. So Vero studies people and she was just like, hey, here's the deal with actual like oh my gosh, Central that's and so South American people versus like indigenous people from that area. So I think she's like, people in North America tend to simplify it and like that's exactly what we're doing right now, but also <laughs> we do it all the time. All the time. That's what we do. And I told her, sorry, love you. We suck. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I love that because I it's hard to really get the nuance of these things when like you're just not involved at all. Oh my God. And she said that she was like, I don't expect any one person to understand the nuances of every culture right. and its discrimination. Yeah. Cause she's a goddess. Yeah, she is. She's the best. <laughs> okay, all right. Tell me what I'm about to drink because <laughs> it looks so fly. It is the deepest red. It's a very deep red. It's cocktail. like a, it looks like velvet. Yes clear velvet yeah um so or this even is silk yes <laughs> so this is queenie's cherry martini so it is two ounces of gin an ounce of tart cherry juice a half ounce of sweet vermouth and some vanilla extract and you garnish it with specifically three maraschino cherries oh cheers wow the tart cherry, I did not expect. Yeah. Well, that's why I wanted to it, add. I did. <laughs> but I didn't expect it. Yeah. It's why I wanted to add the vanilla because I wanted it to be kind of cherry vanilla-ish without being too sweet. Like, I didn't want it to be like a sugary sweet drink. I wanted it to taste like a strong martini. Um, but just, yeah, I don't know. I just, um, I wanted it to be tart with a little well i feel vanilla. so posh drinking this yeah. <laughs> well, i always feel posh when i'm holding a martini mm, glass mm-hmm. and then when it like is like an actually decent cocktail <laughs> yeah it makes me feel even better about it oh yeah definitely well so, miss krista you're welcome again. you're welcome i feel like we've we're still on our good streak mm. because it's not terrible <laughs> I mean, usually by this point in the season, we bombed. What yeah, are we, yeah, yeah. four episodes in? Four episodes in. We're doing pretty good. I know. All right. So what do you know about Stephanie St. Clair? So, okay. I know that she lived in Harlem. I don't know if she's from Harlem. And I know it's during the Prohibition era. Mm-hmm. And I also know that, like, at that point in history, there's something called the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if she's a part of that at all, but just like this. Um, African-American like revolution of art and culture that was happening in Harlem. And that might be after prohibition or a little bit later, but I know that like it is a really big like sector of power for Mm -hmm. African-American culture in New York city, yeah, which is a massive city with a diverse population. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what she specifically did. I feel like she may have been in charge of nightclubs and whatnot. But that's all I know. Okay. So tell me. 
All right. More. Tell me more. So, <laughs> I like, got. Did she have a car? <laughs> she probably had plenty. Um, <laughs> so she was very wealthy. I love so her. So I got a lot of this from MobMuseum.com, Female Criminals Podcast, Wikipedia, Rejected Princesses. I got most of it from Female Criminals because literally her Wikipedia page, and you're going to be shocked when you listen to this story. It's unbelievably short. <laughs> you, you know, I went to the Mob Museum, right? <gasps> So when I was in um, Vegas with producer on a business trip, he had like super amount of meetings one day. So I did something I've never done in my life. And I went out as a tourist by myself. It's the best feeling. I've never clenched my jaw more in my <laughs> entire life. Like I had, a, I had a blast. But one of the places I went was um, the Mob Museum because mm. it's in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And it has... Literally, it has the bricks from the wall from the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. <sighs> it has the guns and the spectacles of, like, people like Al Capone. It was... I mean, Virginia Hall stuff is in there. Wow. Because then the bottom floor is about yeah. the FBI and the CIA. Oh, my gosh. I just... I was blown away. It's If you go to Vegas, I know you're going to be mesmerized by the strip, but this was definitely worth the trip. Yeah, that sounds great. And also, the bottom floor is a speakeasy <gasps> that you have to get a password to get into. <laughs> I love that. Okay, okay. Okay, so, okay. Sorry. Because she was in there. I took women of all the pictures on all the walls, but then I just never posted any of them because <laughs> I was just favoring the moment. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead and tell me about Stephanie. Yes, Stephanie. Steph? Queenie. <laughs> I'm going to call her Stephanie the whole time. Hey, Stephanie, Steph. Um, so Stephanie St. Clair was born on December 24th, a little Christmas Eve, baby. eighteen. 18- 1897. Stop. I know. Before this house was built. Exactly. In the French West Indies, which is now known as Guadeloupe, um, or Guadalupe, uh, she was the third child with two older brothers and a younger sister born to Amadie and Ansla St. Clair. So Stephanie's life on the island was one of privilege. Slavery had been abolished for more than 50 years before she was born. Shocking to me. Didn't know that. Wowza. I know. Um, and the St. Clairs had done very well for themselves, even belonging to an exclusive upper class group because their ancestors had been some of the earliest freed slaves. And so what this meant was like the earlier your ancestors were freed, the more time your family had to accumulate wealth, hmm. which was very interesting. So even among like the black population on the, you know, in the Caribbean islands, like especially this one, like there was a, very distinct like class separation still so it was like slavery was over but class separation was not right right right. the star-bellied sneeches what What is that that's a dr seuss reference everybody out there knows what i'm talking about okay fine i'll make you read the book later okay so this meant that they had a lot more privilege than like the other black families on the island and they were given more opportunities especially when it came to education stephanie received a very good education early on becoming fluent in French and English. And she showed a real proficiency for math. Now we don't know too much about her early life, but historians believe that her father was kind of a craftsman who was well-respected in the community. But unfortunately that was exactly the problem. The family's well-being depended too much on Amadi. And when he passed away, when Stephanie was 11 years old, the family nearly fell apart. So Ansla, Stephanie's mother, 
didn't have an alternative source of income and with four children to take like take care of and social appearances to upkeep she soon started taking money from her daughter's dowries because <gasps> yeah so it's a weird thing because like we're in this weird time frame where like slavery is not a thing but there's still class stuff and there's still dowries so like it's there's a still very women stuff yeah, yeah exactly so but soon the dowries ran out too and oh. Stephanie had to quit school because they couldn't afford it. So she's 13 years old at this Fall point. Fall from grace type thing. Yeah. Oh my God. She's 13 years old. She has no education prospects anymore and she has no dowry to secure a husband. And Ansela knows that if Stephanie just stays on the island, she won't have any future at all. So she made a bold and controversial move. She put her 13-year-old daughter on a boat headed for North America. <gasps> That's what they did with Alexander Hamilton. Alone. Yeah. yeah. Alone. Alone. So since Stephanie was fluent in French, Ansela had arranged for her to jo- have a job as, as like a housekeeper, nanny, um, kind of au pair kind of position in Montreal, Canada. So there's actually like a name for this like movement of Caribbean, like black Caribbean women who knew how to speak French and English to move up to Montreal because they're obviously a French speaking population, but they live in North America. So they also have, so it was like a really interesting time period where like, they're like, we need a bunch of like French black nannies. And they're like, we have them. We got them. Yeah. They're here. Like, they're in Guadeloupe. <laughs> like, hey, we went to Canada and we went to Haiti. Yeah. Have it. <laughs> exactly. So a lot of women found employment in Canada. So she was one of them. So off she went on a 20 day boat journey to New York city where she would have to stop to be processed before, you know, going into North America. And it was a grueling journey where Stephanie was crammed into a small section of the ship with dozens of other people while the wealthy elite who Stephanie was once a part of (laughs) sunned on the upper deck of the luxury liner. And it was on this journey that just made it really clear to Stephanie that if you're going to get anywhere in life, you are going to have to fight for it. So when she arrived in New York at Ellis Island and, and immigration officials started to process her, you know, they were doing the basic questions. They asked for her name and how old she was. And she didn't want any bullshit to happen because she was a minor. So she looked at him. She just straight on 23. He looks at her. She's 13 years old. (laughs) And he goes, We'll just put about 23. (laughs) And she was let in and she was on her way up to Montreal. How Mila Kunis of her. I know. I'll be 18. I'll be 18. I'll be 23. Now she's married (laughs) to like her first on-screen kiss. Isn't that crazy? After he had his ordeal with Demi Moore. Oh my gosh. Let's do a whole episode about that. Okay. <laughs> no, nobody wants to hear about that. Yeah, I, if you do, let us know. Um, everybody wants to hear about that, Katie. If you want us to only talk about celebrity gossip on Patreon, <laughs> let us know because I would love nothing more. I think they will absolutely um, <laughs> oblige. <laughs> they all answer. I also the time. really want to read Demi Moore's book because I've heard it's like really fucking good. Is it about ghosts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an entire book about, about Patrick filming Swayze. ghost. <laughs> but really, the star is Whoopi, and everybody about, knows it. it. No, it's Every- about Everybody knows it. Yeah, well, duh. Okay. So she went up to Montreal and she served the Dubois family for five years. Of course she did. Taking care of all the household duties and taking care of the children for not much pay. And she 
fucking hated it. So as soon as she turned 18, not 28, (laughs) she quit her job, left Canada for New York City to get a job doing like literally anything but that. In New York. Exactly. During the Harlem Renaissance. Okay. So she's entering New York in 1916 during the Great Migration. So this is when a lot of like black families were moving up from the South because they're like, yeah, it's kind of the same thing as when it's like the islands. Like, okay, like slavery is over, but like shit's still fucked up down here. Like, I don't want to be here. I mean, there's like a lynching once a week still. Exactly. Still. (laughs) So it's the Great Migration and she is about to experience prohibition the roaring 20s and the harlem renaissance like it is a crazy time oh my god was the temperance movement a joke in new york i probably no that's where they were like putting the barrels out no the barrels on the streets had to be chicago new york probably didn't give a fuck no i don't think so and i feel so bad for the temperance movement because they had such good points because like their husbands were being so terrible they were abusing them absolutely abusing them they were they were clinging we need to do a woman we We did carry nation we did carry nation we 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 shit on them so much but like they really did do so many important things Absolutely. and we're like helping to save women's lives yeah because as abigail adams says all men are tyrants yeah. <laughs> like, and if you give them alcohol they become more tyrannical exactly um okay and when i said all men i didn't <laughs> mean all men but give me a one-star review and i'll fuck you <laughs> So, and what better time is there to reinvent yourself than the Harlem Renaissance? Stephanie, I said earlier, is a gorgeous, tall, slim woman who had a commanding presence. So when she Mm. moved to New York, she decided to make herself stand out by kind of posing as a sophisticated French woman. She's like, yeah, I'm from Europe. She'd never been to Europe. She's like, yeah, that's where I'm from. But she knows French. People are like, wow. New Yorkers are exactly dumb, just like Baltimoreans. (laughs) Have you ever seen a woman like that in the grocery store? Always. And you're just like, why? Why do I exist? Yeah. When she like Mm -hmm. walks past you and her mask is fly and she's got sunglasses perched atop her head. I know. That's why I really try hard to buy good sunglasses. Mm. So (laughs) when she first arrived, she did have a boyfriend named Duke who unfortunately tried to make her, um, unwillingly engage in sex work. Like she did not want to do that. So she broke up with him. So you know, good on he you. Was trying like, to pimp her out. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> she's like, God. I don't want to do that. Like, Sorry, no. she was like, other like, no shame on people who do, but like, I don't want to. That's like, not what I'm. Yeah, that's not my exactly. goal. Thanks. So she starts looking for work, and because she is bilingual, good at math, and has some level of formal education, that's none of what I have. <laughs> no, I don't have anywhere close to that. I have a hundred days on Duolingo, <laughs> and that's the best that I can offer. And she's this very like, yeah. <laughs> she's this very chic, proper seeming French woman. So she gets a job pretty easily as a bookkeeper at a local policy bank. It was a well-paying, highly respected job, but kind of illegal. <laughs> so do you know anything about policy banking? I don't know what policy banking is. Okay. I don't know anything about money. Producers started buying um online money. Um, yeah, Casey's buying stocks left and right, and I don't know what to do about it. Yeah. They're insane. Jake's not buying- I know it's like a smart move. That was a smart move. Smart move. Is he buying Dogecoin? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. Smart. Not, um- smart. That's what everybody says whenever you say something like Bitcoin, that. Not the Bitcoin, but like the other one. So maybe Dogecoin. Whatever. He's buying thousands of dollars <laughs> worth of 
online currency and I was like, honey, I support you, but don't expect my advice yeah. <laughs> because I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You guys are going to be flushed with internet cash. I don't know what internet cash is. I don't either. But, but we'll I see how it goes. Like nobody knew what Netflix was. And that's look. true. <laughs> yeah. Blockbuster quaking in their boots. So there's one left. Policy banking <laughs> was started out, out of necessity uh-huh. in response to blatant racism okay. because That's black good. people were not allowed to have bank accounts and shit at regular banks. So policy banking, which can also be called the numbers or the numbers game became their way of banking investment. It became their economy. Um, it was built by and for black American communities. So, so FUBU. Pretty much. Okay. So I got a lot of this information, too, from an episode of Criminal called – I think it was called The Numbers. Um, and it was basically this girl who really broke it down because I have a really hard time comprehending this. Um, so – I have a hard time comprehending what happened literally to Mary anything. Poppins. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Money, I get really confused. You're like, a hey penny what? Two pence none the rich or <laughs> what? Kiss me. <laughs> I'm surprised I got that in my head. (laughs) That was sixpence, none the richer, but I do appreciate that um, because I said the band name wrong. (laughs) I said two pence. I knew what you meant. I think I was thinking about how much money that bird lady meant. How much money did that boy have? He had like a pence, right? Yeah, but then I also think about the bird lady from Home Alone 2. And I get wild. I don't know who's worse, the shovel man or the... off the rails off the rails off the rails okay so (laughs) basically how it works is you get to choose a three digit number which is why we put three cherries on the stick (laughs) you get to choose a three digit number and you place a bet on it and if that number it's basically kind of like a lottery but it's a little bit more involved so but it's also very very simple so (laughs) you choose a three digit number like you know five three nine and you place a bet on it if that number 539 is the winning number the payout is 500 to one so if you bet a dollar and you win you get 500 dollars okay if you bet a if if you bet a penny you still end up getting five dollars it's often described as half lottery half investment and the thing about this is you don't need a lot of money to play so a lot of people especially like in harlem were playing like just like a dollar a couple dollars and it's a daily game so you're playing every day and it's just for fun just pick some numbers but the payout was huge and it was quick you were guaranteed your money the next day and of course since this was all underground and on a cash basis if you won it was tax free so the big thing about this is like it's something that you could put your money into and if you win, it is huge. It is life-changing it's money. You're gambling. It is. And, but they, it's like also a form of – it's like investing in your future because you're not – you aren't able to get a bank loan. So the numbers is your only shot of like getting enough money to like buy a house or pay off debt or like whatever. So like if you – again, if you pay a dollar – and you win $500, even if you played the numbers every day for 500 days for just a dollar without winning anything, 
when you do, you're still making money. You know what I'm saying? It like makes up for all of it. And it was a good way for them to be like, okay, like anything spare I have, I'm going to put into the numbers game Mm. because it's not like the chances of winning because it's daily are greater. And then you get a much bigger payout. And for everybody who's tentative on this, here's my liberal agenda. Okay. <laughs> um, women could not have a credit card in their own name until the 1970s. Yeah. So thinking that black people couldn't have a bank account? Mm-hmm. Come on. Yeah. Like, there's no way. Like, literal fucking white women. We, mm-hmm. like, we get seconds at everything. <laughs> <laughs> like... Are you kidding? Yeah. Till the 1970s, these people had nothing. Yeah. So they had to establish their own economy. They're not gambling and they're investing. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and it was also yes. one of the biggest employers in the neighborhood. Some policy banks employed like 100 people or more. Love it. So when Stephanie started out, she was a bookie. It was her job to take the numbers for people and take their money for the bet and give it to the banker. Oh, the banker is kind of the one in control. He runs the policy bank. He manages the game. He's responsible for kind of like managing the money and like paying it out. And, you know, I mean, sometimes again, he can have like up to a hundred employees and there are some people that their literal job is to just run around the neighborhood all day and like take numbers from people like it's like if mrs johnson is like your person you go see her every fucking day and you take her three numbers and you take it back and then you let her know if she won or not and there and like and like a lot of people are playing pretty much everyone in harlem is playing every day so it's a lot of numbers and things to take care of this is hard fucking work oh it's the grind yeah it really is before excel spreadsheets yeah (laughs) exactly (laughs) so now the question is how were the winning numbers chosen so each city kind of had their own method and there's not one pot no (gasps) no i'm blown away now that's the thing each policy banker is its own bank so like if you win from one policy banker, they're responsible for paying out to whoever won in that, mm-hmm. in their like group of people, okay. you know? So what would you do? What would I do? How would you, if you didn't know how they collected numbers, I would roll an okay. nine-sided die. Here That's we go. What I would do. This is actually a really fascinating thing because one of the other things that became really popular was dream books. So these are books that would be like, if you dreamt about the ocean, you should play the numbers three, five, two. It was like a whole, it was literally like a dictionary of like, if you dreamt about this, these are the numbers you should play. If you're feeling especially connected to like, you know, the railroad system, you should play this number. It's like crazy things. Like I know the one thing it's like, you know, if you dreamt about fish or you had fish for dinner or you caught a big fish this week, you should play these three numbers. Because catching big again, fish in Manhattan. Who knows? But like that's one of the methods Sully's that people use. Plains. Because again, you're playing every day, so right. you gotta switch it up. Like no, you don't. You play the same number every yeah. day. A smart person plays the same yeah. number every day. Your chances increase, right? Probably. Yeah. So I, and that's what some people do. They play literally my, the same exact numbers my every day. Statistician. If you play so. the same numbers every day, how long does it take for a three-digit number to come your way? It can't be too long. So I'm going to tell you now how the number was generated. Okay, tell me. So it was usually based around the horse races. 
Okay, so the horse races would happen every day, and they would change every day. So they developed a formula somehow calculating a three-digit number based off of these random horse races. So it was usually the end amount of total bets. So if 500 people went to the racetrack and, uh, you know, they all bet varying amounts, you know, some people bet $10, some people bet 1500 you know, then whatever that ended up calculating to was like, it was like the last three digits were what they picked mm. so that no one could predict it because it was different. Like you never knew who was going to go to the racetrack. Um, and you can't just make it up because then anyone in the neighborhood could look at the papers and be like, no, that wasn't the total amount of bets placed. And some people did it based off of like a, adding a couple different racetracks. Some people did it off of like just New York, like the big New York racetrack. Oh, interesting. So everybody had kind of their own system of doing it specifically by city. And so, but again, the, the big thing about it is it's changing every day and you don't have any power over it. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, because it's the horse race. It's actual. Everybody sees it in the newspaper. Yeah. They know what the results There's are. There's public accountability for it. Exactly. I love that. So to be honest, the whole thing is very hard for me to comprehend. I'm really trying to like <laughs> explain it, but, and I know I'm not getting all the nuance of, of policy banking of the numbers game. Cause it's, I mean, it still happens. I think today, the numbers game, like it's still around. Um, but the thing was, it was a really good system for a lot of people because you could win a lot with a little bit of money. And it, of course, made a lot of money for the policy bankers because if you have 500 people playing a dollar a day, by the end of that week, you have $3,500 coming in. And even if one person wins that week, you're still walking away with $3,000. Mm. But again, it was really hard work, especially in those days when people working at the bank didn't have calculators. So a banker would have to balance numbers, calculations, employees, and of course, lots of money while also, and this is the most important part, being a public figure. The numbers were more important than just a random lottery. They were also a way to create and maintain a community. All of the money was coming from that community. And in like this case, it's Harlem. And it was truly a self-sustained economy. And if people didn't like a particular banker, there were other ones to choose from. So if you wanted to be a successful banker, you had to be a part of the community and you had to be trustworthy. You had to be well-liked. Exactly. So for six years, Stephanie worked and watched and learned how it was done. Steph, my girl. Mm -hmm. She was also just a really hard worker, but working under another person was never going to be her fate. Oh, she's an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So after getting a feel for the system, she made the bold choice to invest in herself and become a banker. After years of working continuously, since she was 13 years old, she had $10,000 saved up, which is... $150,000 in today's money. That's absurd. Yeah. And she used it to start her own policy bank, making her the only female policy bank owner in Harlem. And she had everything going for her to be the best banker Harlem had ever seen. Not only did people respect her, they thought she was cool as hell and super sophisticated. And they also trusted her because she'd been a part of the numbers game for a really long time. And she would remember everyone's names and ask how their kids were and like all of these things, which are really important in numbers and policy banking. Because again, it's all 
rooted in the community. But when she first started out, of course, it's a little daunting, you know, especially to get people to trust a female banker. They're like, yeah, I like you a lot, but this is my fucking money. Like, can this you is, do it? Yeah. Can you do it? So at first it was hard to attract large amounts of clients and employees. So in the beginning, she was doing everything herself. She was calculating the numbers, taking the bets, handling the money, and of course, paying out the winners. It is an all day every day job especially if you don't have employees which she didn't in the beginning so she's doing it all alone all alone but slowly but surely she started to become one of the most successful bankers in harlem and by the mid 1920s she had 60 employees running all over harlem doing her bidding and betting and one of the things that made her so successful is that she lowered the betting minimum so that more people had access to the game. So other bankers kind of started like getting a little, you know, you know, I don't want to deal with these like penny bets anymore, <laughs> you know? So other banks like stopped accepting these low bets. They made uh, the minimum like, um, like 50 cents. We know which like at that time could be a lot for people. 50 cents a day. Do it. Make a minimum lower. I love that. So she lowered hers down to six cents. So people who were in a really tough spot could still play and potentially win big. We're full grown adults and all of us only pet $1 on the Super Bowl. Yeah. (laughs) Which by the way. And we never pay Jake who always wins. No, I won this year. (gasps) You won? My God, bring in the streak. Uh, I love it's why it. Jake didn't um, talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's why it hasn't been brought up by a producer. I had one more question correct. Wow. And he said, Will you make the question? <laughs> That's. Yeah, but you get it from like the I Vegas boards. It, yeah, I just get it off of Vegas.com. Yeah. <laughs> and here's another thing she did she also invested more in her employees. So they got a percentage of each day. She Googled day. them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she built them a slide so- <laughs> and got uh, a, a board. What's it called? Shuffleboard? Ping pong. Oh. <laughs> all, all young youths love shuffleboard. <laughs> so- she got that pinochle. <laughs> She's like, weekly pinochle games every Friday night here, baby. Um, Does pinochle have like a horse face thing? I don't know. I don't know how to... Casey knows how to play Pinochle. Of course he does. Because he's an 80-year-old black man. I love him. It's unbelievable. He did teach me how to play spades recently, and I was very excited. I want to know... Okay, you guys have to come over for... We have to play spades one night because it's a team game. So, like, you have a partner in spades. And, like, you can't, like, openly talk about it. So you have to, like, communicate each other, like, with your eyes, like, I got some books. So like bet big, you know, it's, it's really fun. Uh, uh, double wink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a double wink. Um, that is a Mary Poppins reference. Everybody. I, I recently <laughs> said to somebody that, that, Oh no, he said double blink. My B. But I recently said to somebody, I winked they, that somebody winked at me with one eye and my daughter was like, that's a fucking wink. That's the only way to wink. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Oh, <laughs> Very uh, sorry. It was a Somebody Eliza. blinked at me the other day, and it was very nice. <laughs> somebody <laughs> winked at me with one eye. Yeah, exactly. Were they blind? What's happening? Okay, What's go ahead. On? <laughs> like, that blind means they only have one eye. Well, they would have sunglasses on. You don't know. Perhaps. 
<laughs> or shades. I don't there know. There was a mom at my school that I always thought was blind. Stop. <laughs> and then I carpooled home with her and her daughter one day. And I asked my friend, I was like, how is your mom driving? Isn't she blind? Because she always wore dark sunglasses to school. Like, literally, like, inside the school watching volleyball games. Always, like, dark sunglasses. And my friend Rachel was like, what are you talking about? I was like, isn't your mom blind? And she was like, no. <laughs> Why would you watch a volleyball game if you were blind? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. Whew, okay, I'm getting hot. Hot and bothered. <laughs> we're going to get another one-star <laughs> review on blindness. So she also invested more in her employees. They got a percentage of each day's bets, so they were more motivated to bring in new clients because the more total bets they had every day, the more money they made. That commish. Exactly. <laughs> they were hot on the commish. So, but one of the more important things she did was she invested the profits that the policy bank made right back into the community. She funded lots of local projects, granting loans for businesses or just for someone in the neighborhood to put a down payment on the house, even if they weren't someone who won. You know what I'm saying? Like she was her own bank because that's another aspect of it is the policy bankers are making the most money so they can grant loans to people. Perfect. And it is a privilege that people of Harlem were not allowed at this time. Mm. They couldn't go to a regular bank to do this. So because they had a, a good relationship with this person who is essentially a banker, they could go to Stephanie and be like, I just need this money to put a down payment on the house. She'd be like, absolutely. I'm here for that. Mm. And I just, I think she's great. So now don't get me wrong. She did spend a lot of money on herself. <laughs> good. Stephanie good. loved the finer things in life. And she could typically be seen walking all over Manhattan, as I said, in pearls and a fur coat and, of course, high heels. And she just didn't care how far she was walking that day. And she wanted to be seen because she wanted everyone to know that she was in charge. Mm. Bankers were often called kings because they were, of course, kind of like wealthy benefactors of the neighborhoods. And Stephanie was establishing herself very quickly as the Queen of Harlem. So much so that people started calling her Queenie, but which is why I named it Queenie's Martini. But, you know, people often just referred to her as Madam St. Clair because they respected her so much. So at the height of her career in the late 1920s, she was making around a quarter of a million dollars a year. In in 1920s money? Yeah, I think so. Oh my god. And she's like 30. She's rolling she's in 30 it. 30 years old and Wh- she's What have I been doing? Why we am don't I know. not gambling? <gasps> So she bought herself a brownstone in the wealthy Sugar Hill neighborhood Ugh. and lived among famous black figures such as Madam C.J. Walker, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Thurgood Marshall. But as Biggie said, Sign me up. Mo money, mo problems. <laughs> and she was not just becoming a wealthy woman, but she was a publicly wealthy woman. Was it all a dream? Pretty much. Um, no, <laughs> this is a very real. So she eventually did have to hire some bodyguards and she hired this one guy named Bumpy Johnson. 
Stephanie trusted Bumpy with the business and her life. Did he have and like a rumbly stomach? What's we don't the, know. I don't know. I mean, he's a very like famous person, so Bumpy I should Johnson. know. Okay, but he's just Bumpy. No, maybe, I mean, every mobsters had names. That's fine. Bumpy yeah. Johnson. So it didn't take long for him to really become her right hand man and partner. He would later become one of the most famous black gangsters in New York. Like, it's kind of like fucked up that like he's now a like stephanie st Clair is now like a side story in the bumpy johnson story like that's how big this guy got wowza but she so okay so he started off like as her bodyguard and then like slowly just kind of became more and more of her partner some people say that they had a romantic relationship going on but a lot of people refute that and they're like it seems like they were just like really good partners. He was 10 years younger than her. And I think like we talk about with a lot of women, I think she was like, I'm going to invest in this person because I think he's really fucking smart. I think he's really good. And I think he could really be something one day, which he fucking was. And also he's one like, of the most famous gangsters of New York. I'm fine either way. Yeah. Like, you know what? If you invested in him cause he was young and you saw something in him. Great. If you just wanted to fuck him and then like support him. Yeah. Also great. Also Who fine. cares. Yeah. Nobody cares. So I threw a pen at you. <laughs> it's fine. So they were at each other's sides constantly and, um, people just learned to have mutual respect for the both of them. You didn't mess with Bumpy and Queenie. Mm. She was kind of the benevolent leader, but she could also curse you out in three different languages and take her heels off just to get a running start at you. I just feel so bewildered right now. I know. Because I, I don't want to also make it seem like she, like, had a bodyguard so she couldn't fight her own battles. She was doing both and everything and all of it all the time. But as the 20s ended and the 30s began, Stephanie's problems were only beginning because, unfortunately, there was some new interest being generated around Harlem, and it was going to bring nothing but trouble. So it all started during the haze of post-Prohibition New York. I knew you were trouble when you walked in. A lot of trouble going on. <laughs> so, Sorry, that's not a song Taylor owns yet. Take it away. Take it away. We don't want it until she's re-recorded the album called Red. Stricken from the record. Gone. Now that so <laughs> what was going on? I didn't know anything about this. So now that alcohol was legal again white mobs who had been running the bootlegging businesses were losing tons of yeah, money. I didn't shift. It I didn't know that problem. this was a thing. Yeah. So we should have just given them weed right then. Yeah. <laughs> Everything would have been legalize fun. it. Zero so, calories. <laughs> so they, so the white mobsters were kind of of the mindset that like all organized crime syndicates were kind of in the same boat. They're all losing money right now until a very interesting event. So one of the biggest policy bankers, and in fact, Stephanie's mentor, was a man named Casper Holstein. He was the one that, like, gave her her first job. He taught her everything she knew. He is, he's actually making the most money in Harlem. Like, she's making a shit ton of money, and he's making way more than her. Like, is he a ghost? No, no, no. You would think. I mean, but his name is Casper. I know. But he had actually been one of the trailblazing figures in Harlem and the policy banking system. So he was very well known in Harlem and he was extremely wealthy, but he wasn't super well known outside of it because, again, it's his own self-sustained economy at this moment. 
But in September 1928, <laughs> Casper was playing the ponies, as oh, you no. do. But this time he lost big. He was at $30,000, which is about half a million dollars in today's money. And I mean, 19, this is like right September 1928? Yeah. Okay, this is like right before the stock market crashes? Yeah. Okay. Okay, okay. So he oh. loses half a million dollars, <laughs> which to him wasn't a big deal. He paid the track, took his losses, because he knew there was plenty more for that came from. But people were looking around and they're like, that guy just casually paid the track $30,000. Who the fuck is he? And it it caught him some unwanted attention. Um, And then a few guys started watching him. And then they realized that like, I don't know where this guy's getting his money, but he has a lot of it. So a week after this event at the track on September 21st, 1928, Casper Holstein was kidnapped (gasps) by five white men and held for ransom. No. They said, well, we know we had 30 grand the other day, so let's start there. And they held his, they put his ransom at $30,000. And of course, Casper was like, oh, that's it? So he just called his guys and ponied up the money in like a day. So total... By the end of the third day, he was back on the streets. They got their money, and he was dropped off like a couple blocks away from home. He wasn't too bothered by it. I'm, I'm but, actually really bothered by the fact that seeing... He's a rich black man, correct? Yeah, yeah. So I'm really bothered by the fact that seeing a rich black man, man means like a meal for you. Whereas oh, absolutely. Like, it's seeing, very problematic. Seeing a rich white man would be like, that's what I aspire to. Yeah, no, exactly. That's so terrible. Yeah. And uh, like he was just like, it's just $30,000, like whatever, you know. But Stephanie was like, no, this means more. It means that people outside of Harlem are starting to pay attention to us. And she was right. They were. This was a very high profile kidnapping and other mobsters in New York were watching it closely. And they were all shocked that he was able to get $30,000 together so quickly because again, he was captured over the weekend. So like the regular banks weren't open and like they had connections to regular banks. So like, how did, well, he I just mean, has $30,000 ca- celebrating the Sabbath. Yeah. <laughs> so no money allowed. There, I but, mean, honestly, I, I, I mean, we, we still, Chick-fil-A still doesn't open on Sundays and it's 20, 20, <laughs> Like, come on. People are not opening on Saturdays and Sundays in no, New they York weren't. in the 1930s. Like, I'm not trying to yeah. get an ass, but No, absolutely not. And that's why they were so shocked. They're like, he didn't. Where to get this money? He didn't get that from anywhere. He just had $30,000 lying around. In the walls of his house. It's like me. So, <laughs> it's like me. <laughs> There's always money in the banana stand. So... The white mobsters of New York, so we're talking about the Irish mob, the Jewish mob, the Italian mob. They're all very hot right now, but they're losing money because of prohibition. Right, of course. And they just had kind of disregarded Harlem because they they, they kind of knew about the numbers game, but they were like, you can't make that much money doing it. You have literally people betting a dollar. No, it's ooh, your money maker. Exactly. But now... They were being proven wrong. (laughs) So 
one mobster in particular, Dutch Schultz, was particularly interested. Hate him. Do I hate him? <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, good. He's the worst. I so hated him when I heard he... his name. <laughs> Intuition, so I'll say. He, like many other gang leaders, had made a lot of money during Prohibition, but when alcohol became legal, he needed another source of income. And since there was so much money in policy banking all of a sudden, which is not all of a sudden for everyone who was involved in it, this he is was not like, your oh, game. I know. I'm mad at him now. he started refocusing his attention. (laughs) So he starts kind of looking over and, like, getting interested. And he realizes that not only is policy banking very lucrative, but it was largely nonviolent. That's another thing I want people to know about the Harlem policy banking and the numbers game. Everyone coexisted. So you weren't in direct competition with other policy bankers. It was just kind of like, oh, you're just trying to make some money too. That's cool. From what I understand, it was, there was probably some like, you know, beef or whatever, but like largely they did not have violent altercations. I love that. I think that's a really important point to make. Yeah. It's a really good point to make because people, people assume that black market or under the table deals are always shady and wrecked with violence, but that's not the case. Yeah. Sometimes it's just people surviving because they have to. This is an alternative economy because they didn't have access to the mainstream economy. Right. And they weren't given access. They they asked for it and you turn them away. Exactly. So So they created their whole system. You're taking business people and telling them you're not good enough. So they become good enough within their own world. Why not? so it's like ching shi pirate yeah exactly create your own world my girl but to dutch this meant that they were easy targets and he was a really brutal figure of the jewish mob in new york so he started pressing in on harlem and what made his presence different was that not only was he extremely violent but he had friends in high places so as I said, the reason policy banking even existed to begin with, <laughs> when you say Tim McGraw, <laughs> so it's because like the banks and the government entities and the police departments were overtly racist and pretty much, <laughs> like, we don't get political, still are, but like we have a lot of problems with racism in these entities still Stop today. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No! It's like, no, keep pushing it. Okay. So when Dutch came in, He came in hard and fast with a lot of corrupt politicians, judges, and police backing him. This meant that he could avoid jail time himself while also telling police and judges who exactly to target. So by 1929... police and judges can be persuaded by Mm -hmm. somebody who has money and power? Mm -hmm. I never would have known. I know. They're so pure at the core. Every single police officer I've ever met is so pure. So by 1929, Stephanie's number runners, the guys who literally ran the streets, collecting the bets from people, you know, taking the money, you know, they could not make it anywhere without getting stopped, harassed, and even arrested with no reason by the police. This meant that the people who were playing the numbers game weren't getting their money or bets taken to Stephanie. And she was using a lot of her money bail out her employees for jail so she's making less money and spending more of it so this is not financially lucrative for her and this is the bullshit thing so 
obviously like police in Harlem kind of knew about the numbers game and every policy banker would kind of pay a little bit of money, you know, to the police station to be like, you know, just leave the guys alone. And they'd be like, okay, everybody kind of understood it. But now that they had someone coming in with their bosses telling them, no, you got to crack down on this because of Dutch, you know what I'm saying? So it's still all illegal. Um, and it, it just, it fucking sucked because they had a good system worked out where it's like, you don't bother us. Like we don't bother you. You know, like we're again, like we're nonviolent. So like very stonewall riots. And then it's mm -hmm. like, you're nonviolent. You have a system worked out. Yeah, exactly. Somebody throws a brick and shit goes to hell. Exactly. So Dutch Schultz literally, you're right through a brick, a wrench, whatever into the whole system. And he flipped it on its head. And instead of it working for the policy bankers, he turned it and it worked completely against them. This meant that he became the middleman between the bankers and the cops. So the policy bankers are now paying Dutch Schultz directly to keep the cops at bay. So they're paying him. He's stealing their clients from them. And he starts attempting to fix the numbers game. So he would go to the racetrack and kind of figure out how much he would have to bet in order to make the last three digits exactly what he wanted. <gasps> Fix it. Which is something that, like, nobody had done before because it's not fucking right. And he started rigging the whole system front to back. That's really shitty. I mean, like, I understand the desperation. But, but he didn't need to be desperate because yeah. he was already wealthy. Right, This right, is right. the whole bullshit thing. Like, this is not, like, I stole xyz to like help my family out like this Mm. is i'm literally ruining an entire neighborhood to serve my selfish needs it's bullshit i agree and i I absolutely agree i'm so upset about it because i love money so much (laughs) and if the bankers didn't fall in line he would beat up or even murder their employees to send a message so like all the like people that are employed from Harlem again another very important part of this economy these this these employment options are now becoming dangerous so now it's like a policy banking job used to be well respected used to bring in a lot of money for your family and now it's becoming dangerous and it wasn't before so policy bankers in Harlem started to run out of business and they started to close up shop But Stephanie wasn't going to go down without a fight. And she certainly wasn't going to pay him any money. She refused to pay Dutch Schultz for any kind of protection from the police. She's like, I'll pay their bail money any day. I am not fucking paying you to keep them out of jail in the first place. That's That's bullshit. So great. I know. Because, like, the whole thing. So, like, she's incurred. And then she really had to encourage her employees to stick with her, even paying them more money than they were making before. Because it wasn't just that she wanted to be making all the money. She was pissed because there was this white guy coming into their territory, bringing massive amount of violence and taking business and money away from a community that already had so little. She was like, we have this one fucking thing. Why can't you just leave it alone? Leave it alone. So then she decided to kick it up a notch. So on August 21st, 1929, she started taking out a few ads in the New York Amsterdam news. This is a local Harlem paper that everyone in the area was an avid reader of. She started publishing open letters to the community about what was going on in Harlem. She was like, 
these policy bankers are closing down and this is fucking why i want you to know and she would write openly about the harassment that her and her employees were facing and then she wasn't just writing about like you know the bullshit that was happening to them she was like I know the bullshit's happening to you. So I want to inform you, the residents of Harlem, about your rights as a U.S. citizen. She encouraged them to vote. She reminded them that they have a Fourth Amendment right, which protects them from unlawful seizure and searches. Searches During a time of, like, these corrupt policing, when, like, their rights were being regularly violated. Over, right? I Search know. Search and seizure. I'll just throw your house yeah. over, throw your car over. Exactly. Matter. For no fucking reason. So she took it upon herself to like remind people that they weren't allowed to do this to her and they weren't allowed to do this to them either. She was like, it doesn't matter that like I make more money than you or like they make more money than you. You still have a right because like you are a person in this. Country. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like she just wanted to educate people on their rights, even though they were obviously being violated on a regular basis. But Dutch kept putting the pressure on Stephanie. And as soon as she had to be constantly surrounded, so sorry, (laughs) but Dutch just kept putting the pressure on Stephanie because he didn't like that. She was not falling in line. And soon she had to be constantly surrounded by a fleet of bodyguards because Dutch had put out multiple hits on her. And thankfully, she had a lot of people on her side tipping her off to every hit. I don't know that I've ever had a hit out of my life. I hope I haven't. And in one instance, she was told that a man was waiting for her inside of her house to kill her. So when she went home that night, she was like nearly silent. And when she discovered the man, she quickly overpowered him, shoved him into a closet, locked him in there, and held him there for about like... A couple hours until her men could come over and take care of him. Oh, I totally would have lingerie that situation. Yeah. <laughs> Stephanie's men beat him up and sent him back to Dutch, sending a very clear message like not to fuck with her. And then she took out a large ad in the Amsterdam news that simply said, I'm not afraid of Dutch Schultz or of any other man living. He'll never touch me. <sighs> oh. And then she took matters literally into her own hands. So strangled him to death. mm, I wish. No. (laughs) Um, So Dutch Schultz had a couple of like storefronts that like people could come in and place their bets, whatever. So she literally walked down to a couple of his storefronts and with a baseball bat, of course, and her furs, heels and pearls and fedora. (laughs) She would walk in with her baseball bat look at everyone and just start smashing the glass cases with her baseball bat. How strange. I know she did this a few times, destroying not only the property, but the betting slips essentially ruining a whole day's worth of money earning because she's like, now you have no fucking record because we don't have goddamn computers. <laughs> and she would leave the frightened men because go Dutch isn't there. These are all his like, like right, cronies, cronies, whatever. <laughs> and, she would say, I want you to tell him Dutch Schultz better get the hell out of Harlem. Shit. And then she would walk out. She was going down and she was like, what's your name? Smiley, Sinky, Slimy, whatever (laughs) the the boys' names are. She is on point. Mm -hmm. But he didn't get out of Harlem. 
shit. And then he started to use an arsenal that Stephanie obviously didn't have access to, those friends in high places. And on December 30th, 1929, Stephanie Sinclair was arrested and charged with racketeering. Okay. She sat in jail for three months while her lawyer tried to get her a jury trial because he was like, a jury trial is our only chance because the people of Harlem love you. So if it's a jury of your peers, they're never going to like, can, you know, give you a harsh sentence, even if you are found guilty. But the judge was, of course, in Dutch's pocket and he denied the request. Hmm. So in March 1930, she was sentenced to an indefinite term at the New York State Penitentiary. She got a life sentence. She was 31 years old. Fuck. This left Schultz with one less person to contend with in Harlem, and while she was in jail, his power spread even further, which really hurt the community, because when the people who lived in Harlem were a part of the neighborhood and they, they were running it, the money went back into the community. But Dutch didn't care about the people of Harlem. So the money he was making was obviously going everywhere else but Harlem. But after about nine months in prison, Stephanie was finally released. She only served nine months, which is pretty good. (laughs) Still more than she should have. For an indefinite sentence. That's That's pretty pretty good. good. Um, And she was ready to act on a plan that she had plenty of time to think about. So the year is 1930. Franklin D. Roosevelt is the governor of New York. And he does not like what he's hearing about all this corruption. So he creates a task force to investigate the corruption called the Hofstadter Committee. And that is exactly who Stephanie went to with loads of information about every corrupt (laughs) police officer and politician who she and the other people of Harlem had ever had contact with. Which is really bold because, like, she's a criminal... burn them down (laughs) burn them down she's so bold so her tips to the feds led to more than a dozen crooked police officers being suspended and dutch schultz's entire operation being raided well because this is the whole point Mm -hmm. criminals are allowed to be criminals you cannot be a criminal if you're a police officer (laughs) that's the fucking rules that's the rules So 14 of Dutch Schultz's Schultz's cronies were arrested and the feds seized $12 million in their money, which is $200 million in today's money. It's insane. But they still hadn't caught up with Dutch quite yet because, again, usually like the heads of the mobs are really hard to get. He was so like slinking around mm-hmm. an apartment. Yeah. So Stephanie realized she had to be even more bold. She had to pair up with famous Italian mobster Lucky Luciano. Do it. And the Italian mob. So she made a deal with them. She was Ooh, like, that if you don't. Mm. So she made a deal with them. She goes, I will pay you a portion of the policy banking profits if you can protect my employees from Schultz and kind of get him out of Harlem. Okay. Okay. So an army, she's paying an army. Exactly. Got it. And she asked for one more thing. She said, I want you to take Dutch Schultz out. And they had already had their own issues with him, but it took a while because you know, it's like when you're in the mob, it's like, you don't want to take out another leader of a mob just because some lady told you to. Then it becomes a gang war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, it took a couple of years, but on October 24th, 1935, 
the Italian mob finally whacked Dutch. But not before Stephanie got in one last dig. So he was shot at a restaurant and he was rushed to a hospital. And he was alive, but he was on his deathbed. He had a terrible blood infection. Very Lincoln. Very very long, slow death. So while he was on his deathbed in the hospital, succumbing to a blood infection from his gunshot wound, perfect. She sent him a telegram <laughs> right before he I died. Hate you stop. That said, "As ye sow, so shall ye reap." Woo! Basically, being like, "Fuck you." That was me. <laughs> the gra- the grammar, the grammar, though. <sighs> Which comes from Galatians. <laughs> As you sow, so shall you reap. And after she had finally won the war and defeated Dutch, she decided maybe it was time to take a step back from the numbers game. She handed the reins over to her longtime friend and partner, Bumpy Johnson, and she retired. But of course, she's still involved just a little bit. And eventually, when Lucky Luciano was deported back to Italy, Bumpy and the other kings and queens of the policy banking system finally had control back over Harlem. And Bumpy continued the legacy of the peaceful community-based system that Stephanie had taught him. And Stephanie continued her own work in the community. She kept publishing those ads in the Amsterdam news that kept residents updated on what was going on in Harlem and about their rights and just keeping them informed. She also used her platform to reach people about housing discrimination and police brutality to help people continue to understand their rights. And she continued her work as a community activist for the next 30 years. She helped immigrants, especially from the Caribbean islands like her, apply for citizenship. She helped them find jobs and housing, and she helped them learn English. But while she's doing all this good work, she is also in a bad relationship. So this is a weird note that I feel like I have to include because it's so crazy. So she starts, she gets married to a guy named Sufi Abdul Hamid. Okay. Who is unfortunately known as black Hitler. Uh, he was, hate um, that. I hate that too. Um, he was an Islamic extremist who was a very outspoken anti-Semite. And according to the Mob Museum website, he was the leader of an Islamic Buddhist cult, and he was a con man who claimed to be the descendant of Egyptian pharaohs, when really his name was Eugene, and he was from Philly. Um, (laughs) And the marriage didn't last long, especially after he cheated on Stephanie with a fortune teller named Madame Fu Fatam, who is a black woman claiming to be Asian. There's a lot going on in this situation. I, I'm very confused. I know. About the passion behind this relationship, and I'm not sure I want to know. Her real name was Dorothy Matthews. Wow. <laughs> and apparently, so Madame Fu Fatam and um, Sufi Abdul Hamid were having an affair and planning on stealing all of Stephanie's money which all culminated in an incident in 1938 when Hamid was shot on his way back to work. He didn't die, but he was injured, and Stephanie was accused of the crime. She said, oh, it definitely wasn't me, because if I wanted him dead, he would be dead. (gasps) Yes, girl! (laughs) But she was convicted um, by an all-white jury and sentenced to 10 years in prison, and she served three. So it's just like a really like interesting part that I think a lot of other podcasts, like no no other podcasts I listened to, like had mentioned it. And I think it's important too because like I've never heard of Black Hitler, 
but he sounds like a really wild character. Well, I think we just we just are so content with feeling like Hitler's the worst person that ever lived, and we yeah. we just ignore things like diaspora and like King Leopold. Mm-hmm. And like, we just pretend it didn't happen. It's like, yeah. oh, Hitler is the only person that ever committed. Yeah, a exactly. He's the only anti-Semite. <laughs> and but it's like, no, there's so much genocide. Let's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so something to laugh about at your dinner Mm -hmm. tonight so not much is known about stephanie's life after all this but we know that she continued her work in the community just keeping just reminding people of their rights and their place in the world and she was just such an advocate for people um but unfortunately she died in 1969 um from what many people believe to be a heart attack we don't really know she was 72 years old. Old enough. Old enough. <laughs> and that's the story of Stephanie Sinclair. What a great story. <laughs> I just think, like, I mean, she did so many amazing things coming, you know, from, she's just such a North American, in my brain, like, acolyte, like, coming from the cent- Central American islands to then being in Canada to mm-hmm. then being in New York. And, like, interacting with such of the most um, impactful times pre-World War II. Oh, yeah. It's just very interesting to me. Yeah. It's a fascinating story. This is an incredible story, and I'm so fortunate to have heard it. I didn't know this much about Stephanie St. Clair, and I'm just very happy about it. This is the thing. I'm... <laughs> I'm so involved in the true crime world, and I've never heard of her. It's unbelievable. I literally went to the museum <laughs> and didn't know what her fucking name was, Katie. I'm a, I'm a sham. So now we need to talk about these two women, and really, in your case, like multiple women, yeah. in a little segment we like to call, Just the Two of Us. Okay. I don't even know where to start. I think we need to start at the fact that these women kind of come from mysterious cultures and i mean mysterious in that like they're kind of secretive you know like not in a purposeful way but like mob life you know stephanie is involved in a world of crime and then like they have to be secretive for xyz reasons and i feel like inuit culture and a lot of indigenous cultures we don't know a lot about them and they seem mysterious to us because they were actively silenced you know what i'm saying so there's active silence and then there's forced silence in both of these but then what the end result is is that we get a lot of fantastical stories you know i feel like that's one thing about the mob era and the prohibition era that we get a lot of is these insane stories and oh, that's we've made more movies about that exactly it's so fun to think about yeah and then meanwhile it's like the inuit culture like there they had an oral tradition so unfortunately a lot of it got lost and what we have is wild and rich but at the end of the day it's kind of like you ask yourself but like what do these stories mean mm. you know what i'm saying because like was there a woman with like a clitoris the size of a fox i don't could know she lift a kayak could on three she lift a kayak <laughs> you know but like could she rip a fox asunder <laughs> asunder <laughs> but you know what i'm saying it's like how reliable all these stories but like why are we we shouldn't be asking what how reliable they are we should be asking why they're being told right and that's why we always tell fictional stories yes because it doesn't matter whether it's fiction or or fact or folklore or if there's like 
some sort of half half truth, half nonfiction. The mm-hmm. idea is that 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 female story exists in this world, and why does it exist? Exactly. And the reason is that both of these women were powerful women rising from the dust of a place where they shouldn't be considered powerful. Yeah. So you have a woman who, in Stephanie St. Clair, who is like, hey, I did this, I did this, I did this, and now I'm going to find my place. And then Mm -hmm. you have... Summersock, who is just, we don't know if she existed, but what we do know is that she was outside of the cultural norms and everybody accepted it as a story. Yeah. Well, because I think both of them are beacons of like, if you're feeling like disenfranchised as like X, Y, Z, just know that like you have Stephanie and Summersquat to like look up to and like these are stories we're going to keep telling because sometimes young girls need someone like that. Someone so outrageous to hope towards because if you don't see it, you can't be it. If you don't hear about it, like you can't feel it. Like there is just something so powerful about stories, no matter how outrageous they are. And like, and Stephanie's case, like, She took a baseball bat (laughs) to a mobster's storefront. You know, like, that's crazy. She did, but she also, like, wore a fedora. Yeah. And, like, now we have these younger Inuit women or Inuk women getting tattoos on their face. And they're just saying, like, I am part of this. Yeah. You cannot tell me I'm not part of this. Like, it is on my face. It's on my head. Yeah. Well, and the whole thing is, too. So I remember when I was in college and we watched this documentary about masculinity and one of the things they said Sounds in the documentary <laughs> was, yeah, was they, and it was in a women's studies class, but they were like, oh, like, you know, rappers in the 90s, like, framed themselves after, like, Italian mobsters. And it's kind of like, but there were also black mobsters. Like, they all existed at the same time. Like, you don't think that they also look towards them? Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like this whole thing of, like, the Italian mobsters, the one we know, they're the ones we're comfortable with. So that's the story that we tell over and over again and we ignore. Like, why do we know so much about Al Capone and we don't ever talk about Dust Bumpy Bumpy Johnson and Stephanie Sinclair? Right. You know? It's because we like to just ignore that part of the history and well, we we're like fairy telling it. Yeah. We're fairy telling it the same way that we fairy tale um princess stories in disney like those are arranged marriages they're not happy they're not love matches Mm -hmm. these are people who were told they were supposed to get married and then they did and that's how fairy tales are the same way that we tell mob stories today and i know that's so stupid but it's in the american like genre of like how cool is it to be a respected criminal just like they literally I, called them kings and queens. Right. Like, just like it was cool to be like a respected peasant who, yeah. who made their way up to mm-hmm. the like area of the royals. Yeah. It just feels grimy. Yeah. No, absolutely. But I also want to just bring it back to like. Bring it back. Bring I, it back. <laughs> I think that it is really great how summer is a summer squat. Yeah, summer sock. Summer sock. It's more of like a K on the summer end. Summer sock. But there is a Q, but okay. there's a K on the end. Okay. Um, summer, Scott, summer sock and Stephanie 
both were like not taking men's shit. Yeah. And I fucking love that. I think, Where are your testicles? Uh, <laughs> literally. I think that we always need women to look to in our culture, whether they're fictional or real, who are standing up to men because sometimes it feels so impossible and dangerous because sometimes it is. And yeah. like, I think it is just so empowering to be able to look at me like, I don't know if I could do that, but I love that you fucking did. Yeah. And I love that. I love that Summer Sock is shamelessly raunchy yeah and i just think it's really interesting pairing that against stephanie who like stephanie is there's not much known about her personal life no she seems like of a, a logicist mm-hmm. like she was very mathematically able she was very smart she was linguistic she could speak multiple languages and I, that's not to say that raunchy women are not intelligent. That's mm-hmm. not my means. That's not what I mean by any stance. But they are just very, like, two opposite signs of the coin in yes. terms of feminism. Mm-hmm. And I think both are super necessary. Yes. And I think that their place as women of color makes that even more interesting. Because if we were to paint both these women as white women... It would have been, I mean, Stephanie would have been a Bonnie and Clyde type person. Yeah. Um, and, the, you know, we would have had a Hollywood star out of, yeah. out of Summer Sock. Yeah. Uh, we talk so much about Bonnie from Bonnie and Clyde. And we don't talk nearly enough about Stephanie Sinclair. And I right. think that's a, a, that's a crime. It is. Because <laughs> they're, they're equally criminalized. Like, they, they were in the same time period doing the same practically the same but i think it's more respectable that stephanie actively chose like not to use straightforward violence oh she's not fucking killing people yeah banks for sure like and and i don't know that's why it's so hard it and that's why we say that women have nuance at the beginning of every show because one female criminal is not you know it's not typical of the whole carmen Mm -hmm. san diego is not poison (laughs) ivy it's not (laughs) Is like, not Bonnie. Is not Stephanie. Like right. it's they're so different, and yeah. that's okay. And absolutely, and I think it's also interesting that. But am I going to group all police officers uh, together? Sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no. Listen, so, I just I want to really get that one star review. To like, <laughs> I want it to be so real, and I know it's for me. I know it's for me. But let's get back to okay. I. Also feel like there's a lot of community in both of these stories because okay. when you started talking about like like obviously like Summer Sock is yeah. more of a fictional character. I wrote that to maintain but community. we need to talk about Inuit women altogether and like who they really were and they were the they held together the community and I feel like Stephanie did that even though she wasn't born there. She I feel like that's something that I kind of felt lost in when I was doing her story is that like she wasn't born here. Mm-hmm. She came here at 13 years old and Lynn lived in Canada until she was 18. Like, she didn't come to New York and she, until yeah, she we was. We didn't plan that Canada thing, by the way. Good job, Canada, yeah. for bringing us together. I just, like, I think it's really interesting that community was such a big part of this and, like, pairing up for survival was also a part of it. Cause, like, I don't think Stephanie Sinclair, like, needed a man. But, like, she did employ people to be around her to protect her because people had fucking hits out on her. Yeah. And, like, with any woman, it's like, if I don't have a partner, a partner I will die. And I yeah. think that partner is a really important term to use in this because 
you know, again, I think that people want like Bumpy and Stephanie to like be a couple, like whatever. And like, maybe they were, that's their business, like whatever. But like, ultimately she saw a partner in him because she was like, you're someone who like, I can, like, I can partner with. I can't even think of a better term. The two of us can function together. Yeah. And I think that that's what a lot of the Inuit women did. And that was a way to establish community because if you're trying to engage in a community and you're actively acting as a lone wolf, whatever, what are you doing? If both of you are hunting, then you have nobody cooking. If both of you are collecting, you have nobody making. It has to be a deal. Yeah. There has to be some sort of deal. And I think that's what's so cool about a lot of indigenous cultures is their unspoken deals. Yeah. Of like weird. And and that's what Stephanie had. Mm -hmm. She had unspoken deals with the people around her of like, I'll do this. You do this. Yeah. And we're going to make this entire system function because yeah absolutely it's just like women helping build a community around them because i mean as we talk about it before like it seems to us that like women invest in the whole they invest in the Mm. future they invest in the community they invest in the whole and like they see further than their own self and i think Mm. that is you know obviously like again women have nuance it's not all women but like it's a common trait of the women that we cover that are important to history right because they did that and I think that it is something incredible that Inuit women have all been doing for thousands, thousands of, years. of years. And I think it's something that Stephanie St. Clair did in kind of like a micro way of like, no, I'm not just going to make all this money for myself. Like I am going to invest in myself, but I'm also going to put money back into the community because that's where this money is needed and necessary. And yeah. I just think that's, I think that I think community and family and all of that is really crucial to both of these stories, even though they are so far apart, far apart and yet similar in so many ways. Yeah. Mm. Are you ready to toast? I'm ready to toast. So my toast is kind of short tonight. Um, I just I want to toast people for traditions upheld and mm. expectations met yeah. because I think they're separate. Yeah. I think you can uphold traditions within your family and w- within your life. And then you can meet expectations. And a person that can do both mm. is just a shooting star. And like, yeah. cheers to you. Cheers to you. Cheers. Um, I'm going to toast women who invest in their community. Mm-hmm. I think that Stephanie was doing so much good for so many people. And I just want to toast her for it because I think it is very selfless because she could have just taken the money and like only bought stuff for herself, but she helped out a lot of people in her community. And she is also a shining star. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. Are you ready to promo? I'm ready. Allie, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So we've had a lot of patrons and listeners ask us to do Farah from the court of thorns and roses theory series Series. (laughs) so i decided to read it and i'm really excited about it and i really like it's it's very good like it's fun so 
from what I understand from having a librarian sister and best friend <laughs> is that <laughs> young adult fiction has been split into two categories, which Ooh. is very, very important. There's young adult fiction that is meant for people 16 and younger. And then there's that's like Harry Potter, okay. Hunger Games, like, you know, nothing goes farther than a kiss. Okay. And then there is young adult fiction that is meant to be for 16 to 25 year olds, which okay. is like there are some sex scenes. It gets a little that raunchy. sounds like my wheelhouse. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm reading that. And I was warned about this from the people who requested it. Like it, this main character has quite a bit of sex and like just know that. So it's really good. <laughs> I like that though, because we want you to know that like, even if like we haven't done your request yet, like right. we're working on we it. Are, like, we are. Like fictional characters. Like we do have to spend time <laughs> reading, watching. And like, also she doesn't come into the book as a virgin, which I greatly appreciate. Oh, okay. So it's not like, so because it's a very supernatural book where like she was in the human world and ends up in the fairy world, Ooh. which people know I love magic, which is why I've had several people be like, if you like Harry Potter and the Hunger Games, you will love Blanc. There we go. Like, of okay. course I do. Um, but she doesn't come into the book as a virgin, which I think is so important that it's not a book about losing your virginity to Ugh, some supernatural being. Because it's so like, many are. And yeah, exactly. It's like, I'm not pure. I like came in. I want to have sex. I've already had sex with some dudes. Like, yeah. this is fine. That's really interesting. Okay. And I don't know. So the first book was pretty predictable. She goes in, falls in love with a fairy. I won't spoil too much, but ends up becoming a fairy herself. Oh, but it takes some time. Okay. But then the second, third, fourth book are the second one's definitely my favorite. A bad guy becomes a good guy. Everything becomes great. A good guy becomes a bad guy. <gasps> I was like enthralled. Eliza, my daughter was like, are you going to stop reading that book anytime soon? So you can make me dinner. Like, and I was never. like, never, I don't think so because I'm now in love with these characters. They're my <sighs> friends and I love them. I can't wait. Um, I can't wait to read them. I'm going to have to read them too, but I feel yeah. like you have to do the episode first before I, I read them. So no, then I, I can be, okay, them. I should read them before. Okay. Um, I was definitely listening to sex scenes in the car and my knuckles yeah. were like ripped on the steering wheel. And I was like, Oh my God, that's the best. <laughs> Stop. I'm very uncomfortable, but I also loved it. Okay. So <laughs> Court of Thorns and Roses, if you want a cheap sex scene and a good mm. female lead. Mm. <laughs> a sex scene with, you can go back to. With hot female guys yes. with tattoos. I mean. I love it. And wings. <laughs> <laughs> and wings. Because <laughs> that's what we need. The darn thing's got wings. <laughs> I'm going to promote. An oldie but a goodie, a classic. I'm I promoting Jay Z's The Black Album. <laughs> it's so because good. Because let me tell you, nothing is better. It's so good. It is a perfect record. <laughs> I just regularly listen to it. It's very good. You're right. You're right. It's so fucking good. I. Just, I love it so much, and I've been listening to it a lot recently. Um, it's especially good to, like, if you're doing, like, you know, housework or something. Like, I was painting, like, my new laundry room recently, and I was listening to it, and I was like, fuck. I always forget how good this is. It's good to run to. It's good to clean to. It's good to work to. It's just one of those 
perfect album. So I just want to recommend it. it. It's I so love good. That. So Jay-Z, the black album. If you don't know, now you know. <laughs> um, but that's it for us. You today. love us. We love you. Mm-hmm. We love your one star reviews and your 10 well, star reviews. And that's the thing. If you want to push that, because now that's at the top of the docket. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you want to bring it back, push, bring it back, bring it back, <laughs> push that one star review down to the bottom. Even if you just say, I like it. Even if you just put an emoji thumbs up, that will push that negative review down to the bottom. Uh, um, no, I love, I love <laughs> that I have a liberal agenda. <laughs> It's my, all I've been dreaming of my whole life. My, I um, think my dad is finally fulfilled. Knowing, <laughs> knowing that he was But right. Sandy! <laughs> um, we're basically making the turn that Sandy did at the end of Greece. And In that's, the leather. And that's fine. We Why have leather pants. Why did she go for him? Why did she change herself? Who knows? We have, a, we have perms and leather pants. And nobody knows what happened. <laughs> we're smoking but... cigarettes and <laughs> kicking boys. <laughs> Even if you just want to write a, write a review that says, Tell me about it, stud uh, that would be fine you can write a review that says he has <laughs> chills and they're multiplying all of it any of it but none of the lyrics from grease lightning because that song is actually disgusting it is uh nobody's losing control no. <laughs> <laughs> okay so we love you thanks for listening and we want you to never forget that well-behaved woman <laughs> have a scent that's true, but I also... Well, I have two scents. I have a fancy scent and a daily scent. Then you don't have a scent. Oh, okay, okay. That's true. That's true. Okay. <laughs> I take it back. I'm still not well-behaved. And <laughs> they rarely make history. Bye-bye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>Produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.